Welcome to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast, a podcast all about leadership, change, and personal growth. The goal? To help you lead like never before in your church or in your business. And now, your host, Carrie Newhoff. Well, hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 121 of the podcast. And Happy New Year, Happy 2017 to all of you. It is so good to be with you, and I hope our time together today helps you lead like never before. Man, I am so excited about this interview. I knew when it was happening, when I recorded it with James Emery White, that there was something really special about it. And I think you'll agree. And that's why I wanted to kick off the new year. You know, ironically, last year, we kicked off the new year with a demographic, mostly around millennials and how they sort of work with Gen Xers and boomers. And that was with Hayden Shaw. It was wildly popular. Uh, this one takes a, a similar but different tack. Can, can you say that? Yeah, I'm a preacher. I say stuff like that, right? Similar but different. Um, it is a little bit about millennials, but way more about the generation that follows them, Generation Z. These are the kids who are in college and high school right now, just graduating. And James Emery White has done some really great thinking all about um, their mindset, their view about the gospel. It's really the first post-Christian generation that's emerged. I think you're going to find it fascinating as well as intellectually solid. So if you want to follow along, everything's in the show notes. It's at kerryneuhoff.com slash episode 121. And hey, it's been fun to be with you. This is, uh, we're three days into 2017. It's my third podcast. Can you believe it? First regular drop for this one. Uh, but if you're a subscriber, you know that on Sunday, I dropped a bonus episode to celebrate 2 million downloads of the podcast. You guys have been so generous in sharing it. And so there's a giveaway happening right now on all my social channels on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. If you follow me on any of those platforms randomly until January 10th, we're giving away free Starbucks. So uh, you want to follow me on that. It can pop up at any time on any day between now and the 10th. And it started on Sunday. If you want to catch that episode, just subscribe. It'll automatically download and I answer all your questions or do my best to do that. And we'll we'll drop some more Ask Carries uh, later on this year as well. And then yesterday on the Canadian Church Leaders podcast, we released episode three. So if you haven't checked out that podcast, it's a separate feed. You can uh, search it in iTunes or Google Play, just the Canadian Church Leaders podcast for all you Canadians or everybody who's interested in ministry in a post-Christian context. I do that one, and that's a once-a-month thing, so that released yesterday. And then, uh, yeah, we got today, which is fun. Also want to say thanks to everybody who has jumped in so far on the High Impact Leader. Uh, this is all about getting your life and leadership back in 2017, getting time, energy, and priorities working in your favor. It's a 10-part course that I developed, and it's gone away right now, but you can jump in on the waiting list at thehighimpactleader.com because it's coming back in the middle of the month. So if you missed it before Christmas or right before New Year's, we're going to bring it back one more time for just a few days in the middle of January. Jump on the waiting list for that. Go to thehighimpactleader.com. And I want to let you know about one more thing before we get into my conversation with James Emery White. And that is, I know about 500 of you who are listening were at Rethink Leadership last year in Atlanta at the end of April. And I keep in touch with a lot of the people who were there. And man, that was an experience that was so exciting. We're doing it again this April. It happens April 26th through the 28th, 2017 in Atlanta. 
Um, it is for senior leaders only. So if you're an executive pastor, a campus pastor, or a senior pastor, you are invited. You can go to rethinkleadership.com and make sure you claim your spot. It's filling up fast. It's already over half sold out. And we would love for you to be there in April. You're going to not have the usual conference experience. You'll be sitting around tables, connecting with other leaders who are doing what you're doing. Uh, it's an intimate event, so you'll be able to talk to some of the speakers. And we're going to have some breakout sessions, some affinity sessions that are much smaller than in a typical conference. And you will walk away, I think, with your questions answered. Just go to RethinkLeadership.com and get in before it's too late. I'll be there. So will Les McEwen, who is a previous podcast guest. He had such a good time on the podcast. He said, I'll go to the conference. So he's going to be there at Rethink Leadership. Uh, Les McEwen wrote Predictable Success and The Synergist. He's going to share some of uh, his incredible insights. We've also got a great lineup of speakers that uh, you can find out about at RethinkLeadership.com. And in the meantime, just make sure you get there. So that's RethinkLeadership.com. All the links to what we're talking about are in the show notes as well. So you can just go to my blog, KerryNewhoff.com, and find it all there. And in the meantime, let's jump into a fantastic conversation to kick off the new year with James Emery White. Here's my conversation with Jim. Well, it's just a thrill to have James Emery White on the podcast today, and uh, I've shared the story in the intro about how we actually met, and it's one of those very memorable encounters for me, but I was a face of 600 that day to you back in 1999, but uh, publicly just thank you so much for that huge, huge, huge deposit that I think God has done extraordinary things within in my life, my wife's life over the years. Thanks. You're welcome. Really good to meet with you. Still do conferences from time to time? Yeah, I do as many as, uh, as I'm able. Yeah. Uh, so I enjoy those. That's great. Well, it's great to connect again. Um, you got a brand new book. And tell us, it's all about Generation Z. And for the Canadian listeners, Generation Z. But I'll go with Z, if that's okay. <laughs> uh, tell us, what got you passionate about this? Because you've written about the nuns. You've written about so many different things. But uh, why Generation Z? Uh, it actually started with the research for the Rise of the Nuns book. And what happened was, was that I was finding, as did many social uh, people in the social sciences, that as you um, you study the rising post-Christian nature of our culture and the rise of the nuns, the people who check nothing on a box in terms mm -hmm. of religious affiliation, that the younger you get, the, the worse it is. Yeah. That the younger in age, the higher the percentage. And as I began to dig further and further in, I became fascinated by the youngest edge of this that was the largest percentage. And that, of course, led to Generation Z, which is the generation that follows the millennials. Mm -hmm. uh, you can't call them younger millennials. They're a totally different generation. Um, uh, so uh, millennials did not grow up with the Internet in their back pocket. Generations right. did. And um, in fact, if you... Uh, Older millennials were raised in the 90s, and that was largely pre-internet. I mean, yeah, really. It was, was dial-up, and the yeah, whole strategy was you have a family computer on dial-up, and everyone can see what everyone else is doing. And, I mean, that's arcane now. It, it doesn't even oh, it exist. Is. So Generation Z uh, began to really fascinate me because of them being the, the really typifying the nuns. And uh, also the fact that, uh, as I'm sure you know, they are officially the largest generation on the planet. Even bigger they're, than millennials. Huh? Oh, yeah. yeah they're the yeah. biggest. So define the age category right now, or even for people who are listening like a year or two later. Under what, 25. Under probably 25. Under, so that's the easiest way to say it. 
from birth to gosh, my math is terrible. Early nineties, they were born, yeah. right? Ninety, like maybe um, two oh five, something like that, somewhere in that range. But um, essentially, the under twenty five generation. So uh, decisively, uh, middle school, high school, college. Hmm. Yeah. So most of these are just launching into life at this point now. They are. Yep. Some of them, like the high school, college students, yeah. etc. Yeah. Yeah. And and you studied both churched and unchurched, correct? Uh, was it largely, large, largely unchurched. I mean, okay. that's always been my passion and, and my focus. And, um, and, and the reason that it's so important to study them is because we really are, are talking, Carrie, about the first truly post-Christian generation in the, in America, at least. Yeah. I don't want to say the West, but I, I would say in America, it's, it's clearly the first truly post-Christian generation that themselves were raised largely by nuns. Mm-hmm. And so it's, 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 it is our mission field. It is the future of everything. I mean, I often told a lot of leaders, I said, I know that you're just now wrapping your head around millennials, or maybe you're still back in boomer age. Drop it all <laughs> and start focusing on Generation Z because they aren't simply the next generation in culture. They will be culture. Yes. Oh, that's a really good way of putting it. Now, you're also an academic. So let's talk about that for a moment. When you say post-Christian, what is your understanding of post-Christian? The current culture is fast losing even the memory of the gospel. Mm. So it's not simply uh, post-Christian in terms of uh, sensibility. And it's not right. simply post-Christian to where Christian um, organizations and structures are no longer influencing society. That ended quite some time ago. Uh, with I mean, Newhouse was talking about that with the naked public square, I mean, yeah. decades ago. What we're talking about is an era when ev- what what made us have anything like a Christian memory, a Christian ethos, uh, a, a place of even respect or a designated role for the Christian faith, it's just complete. That's just gone. Hmm. We're post all of that, and so it is truly a a um, a culture that, while it still has spiritual sensibilities. Christianity is not a dominant force. It is not a primary voice. Yeah. It is at best a minority report. Right. And so when you say Christian memory, this is not like a revival where we bring everybody back. There is nothing to revive. The patient never walked away from anything. It just never really had anything in the first place. They, if you say, well, like in the Old Testament, they're like, hmm, I don't know what that means. Right. Yeah, uh, I've, I've often uh, find myself increasingly using this kind of biblical metaphor. We've moved from an Acts two uh, culture to an Acts seventeen, okay. and takes two radically different approaches. In Acts two, you have Peter speaking to the God fearing Jews in Jerusalem, and when you look at uh, who that audience was. Uh, Peter designed a message that was perfect. I mean, they were monotheists. They believed in the Old Testament scriptures. They embraced the prophetic texts about a coming Messiah, even though misinterpreted them. Um, They had a built-in sense of guilt or conviction when they uh, violated the Judeo-Christian, not not Christian, but the Judeo uh, tradition. I mean, there was so much there. I mean, I've often joked, you could win those people over with a tweet. Hmm. They, They were so far down the field. And of course, what did Peter do? His talk was extremely short, extremely uh, focused. 
He said, okay, you know about all this. You know about the scriptures. You know about the coming of the Messiah. Okay, Jesus was him. You killed him. He rose again. You're in deep weeds. Repent. Thousands did. Yeah. Acts 17 with Paul at Mars Hill, totally different approach. They were at best pagan agnostics. In fact, that's what the the the, the shrine to the unknown God was about. Right. The only thing we can agree on is that we can't know anything. Right. And so what does he do? Missiologically, and Paul was a good missiologist, he goes all the way back to creation. And he starts working his way forward. And if you notice, he doesn't even bring up Jesus till the end mm-hmm. because he's got all this ground to cover. And so where um, what I have been trying to uh, herald with people is that it used to be that we uh, built our evangelism on an Acts 2 model, and rightfully so, mm-hmm. because on a scale of 1 to 10, people were already on an 8. Yep. You know, they believed in God. They they had a positive view of the church and its leaders. They had they believed truth existed. And, I mean, I could list off a whole bunch of things that were present in someone in, say, 1960, a typical unchurched person. But now they're not on an eight. They're sitting on at best a two or a three. And so whereas before evangelism could be event oriented, yep. uh, cold call presentation of the gospel through and using uh, evangelistic strategies like revivals and Sunday school and busing and door to door visitation. Now we have to recapture a sense of evangelism as process and event. We have to learn how to move someone from a three to an eight. And then once we get them there, where they can even responsibly entertain the call and claims of Christ. Now, Carrie, as you know, uh, they don't teach how to do that in seminary. (laughs) And there's not a lot of even uh, people who are talking about moving people from a three to an eight. Uh, But that's the heart of the evangelistic and apologetics challenge of our day is the process part that leads up to the event. And in a post-Christian culture, that becomes even more challenging because you're dealing with such widespread spiritual illiteracy, and um, you're really having to begin at the very beginning. Yeah. And most people don't know how to do that. In fact, most churches don't try. Right. I mean, we both know most churches, even ones that use a lot of evangelistic rhetoric, they're they're focused on transfer growth. Right. I mean, five minutes into whatever they're doing on a weekend, you know exactly who they're trying to get. and um, it isn't somebody who's post-Christian. No, I understand that. You know, here at Connexus Church in Canada, I mean, I always joke with the staff, the good news is we're accomplishing our mission. The bad news is we're accomplishing our mission. Because <laughs> 60% of the people who walk in the door don't have a church background, yeah. which means yeah. not a lot of, of Christian memory. And you really start at the beginning. So let me ask you this. There's so many, I mean, this could probably be a six-hour podcast. This is amazing already. Let me ask you this. That journey from a three to an eight, is that a corporate thing that the church does or a personal thing that people who attend the church do with their friends and neighbors? Like, I think the average Christian would go, I don't even know how to get somebody from a three to an eight. I know how to bring them to church, but like, you know, hey, would you come with me on Sunday? But how does that play out? How do you get people to move up that spectrum? Yeah. Yeah. Well, the answer to your your original question, is it a corporate thing or an individual thing? Of course, the answer is yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a, um, very, um, uh, there's a, there's a, a real, um, powerful interplay between what the church does and what individuals do, uh, on their own. Right. The, the, the way that, that we, um, tend to see it is that people move from a three to an eight, for example, let's just talk about a typical unchurched post-Christian person floating around, um, who's spiritual, but not religious. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and in fact, they have anticipate. Uh, you just have almost a negative feeling toward anything religious or organized, and certainly the church. Okay, the first and most primary thing is we have got to get them uh, in relationship with a Christian. Hmm. I, I mean that just that friends. is where that's where it starts. Yeah. Everything starts with a personal relationship with someone who is following Christ. Now, if that is a healthy relationship, and if that is something that is uh, the person who is the Christian is trafficking in both grace and truth. Hmm. They're winsome and compelling. They're 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 relatively normal in terms of you know in the eyes. They but they and the person just senses that they've got something maybe I don't have. I mean, there's something in your marriage or in your family or in you know whatever it is. If 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 that can be a positive, healthy thing, which is what it's designed to be. Um then that's going to open up spiritual conversations. It's going to take down walls. It's going to get rid of stereotypes and caricatures. And then um, you begin to have the opportunities to then invite them into other events and, and experiences, whether it's a concert or a, a, a justice cause issue or even a weekend service that will move the ball down even further. Right. Now, what we do um, is that at Mac is that we um, we create weekend um, atmosphere and an experience that is designed to move someone from a three to an eight. Hmm. Now, this is this is very different, Carrie, than old uh, secret targeted strategy uh, that both of us are familiar yeah, I mean, with. That's what we were all teaching in the nineties, right? Yeah. yeah. And 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 one of the main reasons, that, and what's different about it is, is that first of all, um, nuns today, and certainly Gen Z, they're not seeking. <laughs> yeah, they don't so, even know they have a need. They're, they're very, yeah, they're, very at, they're at content. best open. Yeah, they're at best open to an exploration. Yeah, but but what they are open to is a conversation, and they're open to um, to a certain amount of exploration, particularly when uh, they're intrigued by it through a friend, and if when they get there, some of the questions that they really do have about spirituality are being addressed. So what we're doing is. Um, we're not assuming they're seekers. We're just assuming that they're back there on that two or three mark on a scale of one to 10. And so we're just trying to explain our way to moving them down the field and, and understanding their spiritual illiteracy. So yes, in the sense of the, what you did back in the eighties and nineties, where you are, are being sensitive to where people are who come into your church from an unchurched background. Right. It's just that the nature of that sensitivity has changed. Um, uh, to to a, a hyper explanation mode. Okay, so so can you give me an example of what that looks like? We we're going to cover a lot of ground here, but this is just fascinating to me as a as a preacher. How does that? How has that changed your preaching? Because you <laughs> well, preach in the same place for twenty five years. It's certainly going to change how you say what you say. Yeah. So I would never. I mean, um, I would never simply say, okay, in in John four twelve, it says this. Uh, I would reference as, as, as in one of the four biographies of the life of Jesus written by a man named John, it says, you know, that's in the Bible. Right. So I, it would even take an extra, an extra word or two to explain even a scriptural reference in our, uh, music. In fact, I got a blog coming out on this, uh, soon, um, uh, that, uh, I have a whole thing about how even with music today, uh, how so many churches that would consider themselves particularly sensitive to this issue never even bother to help people understand the language being used in the song. Yeah. So we'll throw out grace or Hosanna or salvation and 
we don't realize they have no clue what those words it's mean. It's church speak. Yeah, it is. And, and it's, the thing is that some of the hippest churches have cleaned up the talk, but they've never cleaned up their music. And so we have regularly um, uh, videos that are are woven into our, 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 our worship times and programming and arts that are explaining even the song we're getting ready to sing. So let me um, ask you, because you're a student of, of the wider church as well as of culture, but one of the high growth areas right now, and I won't name particular churches, but we can all fill in the blanks, would be you know heavy, heavy worship experiences that are unexplained with passionate people. And in fact, you know, Bill Hybels used to say, I don't want anything with the blood, you know, in, in, in my service. I don't want any of those songs. A lot of the churches that are really growing right now are using very explicit, unexplained theological lyrics in their songs, and they're seeing growth. What, what would you say to that? Is that like church kids are who are coming back? Are you, are you trying to throw me raw meat? Okay. <laughs> I'm throwing you raw meat. Go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> And I, and, I, and, and I wouldn't mind circling back around and, and answering one more thing about your yeah, original yeah. Okay. too, about just the kinds of topics and how they've changed. Okay, we'll come back to change that. If you're going to be from a three to an eight in explanation. But let me answer this last one. Yeah. Um, I, I, am, I am on the warpath against growth uh, that is happening in a church. And people will say, see, that's what you've got to do to reach an unchurched person. And I say, whoa, 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 whoa. What kind of growth is that? Yeah. Is it transfer growth or is it conversion growth? Is it people who are unchurched or simply dechurched? Uh, are they baptizing uh, uh, really card-carrying, uh, freshly minted atheists who become Christians? Or are they just cleaning up a lot of Presbyterians because right. they didn't like the way they were baptized or or Catholics? So, so tell me a little bit about your growth. Carrie, in America, and I think this is true of, in a lot of places, some of the fastest growing churches that get a lot of the press are growing through transfer growth. Yeah. And even their baptism numbers are a little bit sketchy because of who they're baptizing and are they, this is something that's not being talked about theologically, rebaptisms, mm-hmm. which is, I think, theologically scandalous. Um, read baptism, meaning, okay, this person really did get baptized at eight or 12 It's believer's baptism, but they have now rededicated their life or they, they, they want to do it again. And the church doesn't screen it. Right. And, and so they do it. I mean, um, so I, I'm when, when someone says, but this church over here is growing really fast, man, he's, he's not speaking to the unchurched and their music is not this. And, and I said, listen, let me tell you something about Mac. We may have had a lot of growth and we may be large, but we would be 10 times our size if we were after transfer growth because transfer growth, quite frankly, is easy because then you're simply catering to the already convinced and you're providing a product for people who want that product. You're basically an Acts 2. You're not an Acts 17. Well, yeah. And it's like you're, you're I mean, quite frankly, how easy is it to get a I mean, I, I know it's, it's hard, but I mean, mm. to me. How how much easier is it to get a bunch? Here's the here's the analogy. Yeah, let's say, Carrie, that you want to fly from Canada to Charlotte. Right. And um, so you're going to go online and you're going to look at all the different airlines and you're going to make a consumer decision. Right. Who's going to give me the best flight times? What's the best price? Who's got the best safety record? 
you know, where can I get bumped up to first class? I mean, you're going to make a consumer decision because sure. you're trying to fly from, you know, uh, where you live to Charlotte. Okay. Imagine if I'm trying to get you to fly to Charlotte, you don't want to go to Charlotte. <laughs> you not only don't want to go to Charlotte, you don't even like airplanes. And it doesn't matter how cheap the ticket is or yeah, 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 whether yeah. there's business yeah, class. All of a sudden, I'm, yeah, it's a totally different thing that we're about. Yeah. If I am just trying to get people to move from American Airlines to Delta, all I got to do is give them a, a, a better consumer choice. To me, that's the nature of transfer growth. Mm -hmm. I'm just trying to go out to all the Christian community and say, hey, we do it better here. Yep. Um, and quite frankly, that nauseates me. I, I mean, I, I'm not going to give my one and only life to that. But, uh, okay, let me, let me play that so. counter argument because I, I, I hear what you're saying and listen. We've had the same conversation at Connexus where we're like, if we stop trying to really reach unchurched people, we could probably be, you know, pick your number, the size of what we are right now. Uh, but wouldn't people say, well, those people would be lost anyway. And so it's, you know, we're, we're just vacuuming up the people who, who fell through the cracks, got de-churched, and that's a legit ministry. Are you making that as a theological question? <laughs> sure. Why not? Uh, well, I, I'm I talking would, I, with a theologian. Yeah, this, I would, these are the I conversations would, that happen yeah, every day. I, I wouldn't buy that theologically. Okay, tell me why. Well, I'm not. I'm not. A, I'm not a hyper Calvinist that way. Okay. At all. In fact, in fact, that 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 line of thinking scares me to death. Tell me why. Because I think it's ant ant antithetical to the evangelistic vibe and mission of the New Testament and everything that Christ died for. And every and I could just list you every whosoever will passage. I, I, I'm, I'm just, I'm diametrically theologically opposed to that. Hmm. I, I mean, I, I genuinely do believe that, um, uh, to the core of my being that the Holy spirit taps every single person on the shoulder of their heart, um, uh, for, for response or can, and, 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 and that's the heart of the Holy spirit. And I don't think it's a select few that he taps. Um, and, uh, people who want to throw out irresistible grace to me and say, see, the, I mean, you know, you don't have to be as evangelistically man maniacal as you are. I always say, listen, I'm not going to get all into all the reasons why I'm not a hyper Calvinist with you, but um, it all rises and falls on irresistible grace. And if you believe in irresistible grace, you got a real problem with the rich young ruler mm. who walked away. Because it was irresistible. Point blank, Jesus called him. You cannot water that down. And if someone says, well, that was Jesus. Well, is Jesus not God in human form, the second person <laughs> of the Trinity? So you're saying, okay, they can say, uh, they can't say no to the Holy Spirit, but they can say no to Jesus. Now we're getting into some weird theology. Yeah. The rich young ruler turned Jesus down cold. Right. No way around that. Yep. Um, and, um, and so, um, uh, mm. So I'm not one who who I, I think that uh, grace is resistible, but grace also prevenient grace comes to everybody. Uh, and uh, man, and, and I think that this generation of Christians will stand before God and give an account for this generation of non-Christians. Well, I think on a very practical level, one of the questions we have to ask is, who are we trying to reach? Are we really trying to empty the living rooms, the bars, the shopping malls, the beaches, the ski hills, or are we trying to empty other churches or, you know, give a slightly better experience? I think your airline analogy is brilliant. Well, and I think that as, as, as often said, I mean, I think that we ought to be 
flamingly like Jesus when it comes to evangelism, who even when he was dying on the cross was trying to reach one more. Yeah. 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 I mean, that's just, that needs to be our passion. Love your heart on that. Absolutely love your heart on that. And, you know, for, for us at, at, at Conexus, that's been a, a lifelong struggle. We're like, no, nah, we don't want to empty other churches. In fact, we discourage people from attending our church unless they actually moved into our community and are looking for a church. But like the serial church hoppers, I'm like, go, go find somewhere else to park and rest and evaluate and criticize and I appreciate that. And you've, you know, over, over your lifetime, you've got multiple campuses, 10,000 people coming. I, I take it the majority of whom really were one back from being lost. Right at about 75% of our total growth comes from the previously unchurched. That's amazing. That's amazing. Do you have a definition for what that means previously unchurched? Yeah, we, we, we track, everybody does it differently. We track it in terms of uh, throughout all of our membership classes, because that's when we can really like do survey work. And we're just straight up. Have you been actively involved or part of a church in the last six months or one year? Uh, I think it's one year we, we have it be at all. And if they say no, well, okay, you've been functionally unchurched for at least a year. And then we also ask, have you ever been a member of a church? Have you ever been baptized? Would you have considered yourself a Christ follower before coming here? I mean, we, we have a whole bunch of questions that we're very candid about. And people are very candid in their responses. Yeah, yeah. That's good. Okay, you want to get back to preaching. So how has that, because I mean, you've gone through a number of model shifts as the culture around you has changed, having been really in the same place doing ministry for 25 years now. How has this shift in culture impacted your preaching and teaching? You know, a couple of ways. One is, is that um, I am thrilled to be teaching at this stage and in this culture because for the first, for the first time, it's been this way for about at least five years, the first time you can devise talks that effectively reach the unchurched and scratch exactly where Christians are itching. Okay. And that's because one of the things that is not talked about is how much Christians have been affected by the post-Christian culture and are themselves at best atheological and have never really been discipled and come in with an enormous amount of, uh, of, a, of a secular mindset. And so I can do a series that might be just perfect for who I'm trying to reach. And I've got Christians just lining up saying, finally, somebody's talking about that. I have always wanted to know the answer to that. And they're as intrigued, if not more, than the non-Christians. So for example, and uh, uh, give me an example of a topic that we re- that, that would fit that. I mean, I could give you several, but we just did a series we finished called The Bloody Bible. Wow. Great topic. And it was uh, trying to address a lot of the, the views of the neo-atheists. Now, the neo-atheists themselves, the Sam Harris, the Christopher mm-hmm. Hitchens, the Dawkins types, are not as influential among the nuns as people think. But their viewpoints have found themselves on a lot of uh, platforms and blogs on the Internet. A lot of Reddit. <laughs> and Yeah. And so um, these are questions that nuns have as part of moving things down the field and are very important to explain to help them move down the field. So we did a whole series on, okay, what is up with uh, the sacrifice of, you know, the whole uh, uh, Isaac thing? And what is up with the genocide of the Canaanites? And what is up with, with um, uh, the, the, the really horrific things that are in Scripture where the, the, the concern is not, do I believe in God? But what kind of God is this? Yeah, yeah. 
so um, and then, of course, ended with the whole big conversation. What's the difference between Islam and Christianity and, and the jihad and the crusade? And, and, you know, I mean, these are the, the all the light things. It's all the questions. <laughs> so we did that series. And oh, my gosh, people were just like, ah, that's always been the elephant in the room for me. I never wanted to even bring it up because I thought somehow I'd be, I was being disloyal to Christianity if I brought it up. But I'm so glad we just got it out there and talked about it. And the non-Christians were saying, well, that's really helpful. I didn't really know the backstory there. And it always kind of made me a little, you know, concerned about Christianity. So you can have these series that, and again, this is kind of like the new apologetics. The new right. apologetics is not evidentialist. I mean, you need to get into the evidential stuff, but the new apologetics is dealing with the character of God that is under assault. It is dealing with um, the the um, the character of the Christian faith uh, when people feel like it's simply judgmental and homophobic and things of that nature. So it's it's defending Christian community, defending the character of God, uh, with people feeling that they could run things better than God. Yeah. It's dealing with uh, many of these new issues, and then also just flat out explaining, okay. Talk to me about the cross. What, what, what is up with that? Yeah. Why did he have to die instead of just waving his hand and saying, I forgive? Right. Like, like, you know, and, and these are bright people and they're asking bright questions. And so the new apologetics is not so much, you know, give me this, the seven reasons why we can be confident that Jesus rose again and the eight reasons why the texts of the Bible are, you know, healthy and supportive mm-hmm. and have integrity. Their question is, okay, so Jesus rose from the dead. So what? Yeah. Yep. The Bible is true. So what? Right. Uh, Jesus died for me. So, so what? what? And that so what question is uh, a critical one to answer that, that not many voices in our culture are. Who's doing a good job of answering? It's funny. I just finished the last series I taught, and the last week was called So What? If all of this is true, it was evidence for heaven. So what? So yeah. big deal. It's all real. What different? And mo- most people are like, okay, I'm convinced it's true. It just doesn't matter. It sounds like we're well, having similar conversations. I think young leaders need to be uh, finding um, other pastors and leaders and speakers that they think understand culture, get it, and are trying to address and standing on Mars Hill in an Act 17 way. Yeah. Uh, you know, they ought to be listening to your stuff if they want to come to the Church and Culture website and listen to our stuff. They just need to start listening to it so they can see, because it, it is, it's not just simply learning a new language. It's learning a new way of, of uh, doing um, verbal uh, interaction with right. culture. And it is a skill set. It is a gifting. And um, sadly, so many people that, um, uh, let's just say that I hear a lot of talks that might be influencing other leaders. And I'm listening to it and I'm thinking, has this guy sat down across from a non-Christian in the last six months? <laughs> Probably because not. Because you, wouldn't, you wouldn't be talking to them this way if you had. You know, if you're doing, if, like for example, uh, when, when I talk about um, uh, issues related to homosexuality or gay marriage, um, which uh, we have a sizable number of people from the LGBTQ uh, population that attend Mac that are exploring and trying to find out about sure. Jesus. Yep. And so uh, I talk about sexuality quite frequently. And so when I'm talking about it, I'm talking to gays. 
Right. Not about gays. You're talking no, to no. gays. No, People that I'm in relationship with, that I've had conversations in my office with or other places. I mean, so and, and so it's it's not uninformed. Now, it's you don't water down truth, but you get a lot better at how do you convey truth? And and, and this is another way I've I've I always am haunted by. Jesus went to the woman at the well, and there's countless stories, particularly in the Gospel of John, that capture this. Jesus went to the woman at the well and gave her ridiculous amounts of grace and acceptance in ways that if you understand the ancient Near Eastern culture of the day were scandalous. In fact, when she approached the well, the culture of the day would have been for him to have moved at least 20 feet away. There was a whole lot of stuff that when you study Jewish Samaritan interaction, Jesus, it was, it was a scandalous interaction cultural. And so he, he gave a radical acceptance as a person and, um, and grace and served up truth on her life that was uh, just almost awkwardly uncomfortable. Go call your husband. You're right. You don't have, how can you call him? Cause you're just living with him. And he's like, what number eight now? Yeah. Okay. And he did it in such a way that what was her reaction? She went running to the village saying, you got to come here. This guy, you got to come here. This guy, he told me all about my sex life. Come and he'll tell you all about yours. <laughs> Jesus could interact with people who were unchurched and who were lost and, um, everything, all the language that we would use today to describe our culture. And at the end, they would still invite him to their keg party. Yep. And, he and yet he never watered it down. Nope. Never compromised it. So I think that, that what we're doing at Mac is that we're creating, uh, these, this meeting at the well kind of atmosphere, uh, that that's just our DNA. And it's raw and it's real and it's honest. And there are things you may not have talked about or papered over. It feels like, is it to me, it feels like every series is an apologetic series. Is that what it feels like to you these days, really speaking in that? Culture? I think every series is an explanation series, yeah. which is what well, I think is the new apologetics. But also, and this is what I love about it, which I mentioned earlier, you can throw one rock and hit two birds because the heart of discipleship, for the typical Christian today is explanation. Yeah, they don't understand. They they agree emotionally or they made a decision, but like the ability to defend it ends at one question. Why do you believe that? Ah, uh, I don't know. I just do. And yep. we found that too, that when you when you really engage a dialogue with unchurched people, the Christians come alive because they're like, oh, I, I, well, these, I never knew. It, it's their question too. Yep. It yep. really is. Eddie Stanley says it's people issues. And when I heard that, I'm like, he's right. He's right. It's just people issues. These are these are people issues and and so on. So let let's drill down a little bit on some of the characteristics of Generation Z and how they are different from millennials, from Gen X, from boomers, etc. Um, this is this is just so helpful and so refreshing. Uh, you talk about the disappearance of childhood. And we already talked about the fact that millennials who grew up with dial-up internet have had a radically different childhood than Generation Z. Um, what is the impact of technology on this generation? You had about four questions there. Okay. Um, <laughs> let's, let me, let, the, the disappearance of childhood is a fascinating thing to me because um, that was first suggested by a sociologist named Neil Postman yes. and who wrote a real prescient book called The Disappearance of Childhood. And he saw uh, several decades ago this coming, how we were increasingly um, having a culture 
that was ripping away the very nature of childhood. And the nature of childhood, he argued, and I think he's correct, is that there is a time when a person at that age is protected from mature adult things. Mm. It, it, it is a purposeful naivete. It is a purposeful innocence. Um, they're not exposed to certain things. That's part of childhood. Um, you know, they're not thrust into marriage at age three. They're yeah. not exposed to sexual issues at age four. They're they're protected from you know violence of war. Well, hopefully, mm-hmm. you know, they're 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 there's a there's a childhood there. And what he argued was that our culture is ever increasingly stripping away childhood and thrusting these children into adult themes, adult exposures at an ever earlier age. Hence, the disappearance of childhood. Again, I think now that is almost uh, stamped on our culture and, in fact, has created an entire uh, uh, phrase in social science called growing older, younger, which is where ever increasingly uh, young ages, we're putting the expectations for adult behavior and we're exposing them to adult behavior and knowledge um, at an ever earlier age. I think, in fact, in the UK, they're now... Uh, discussing transgender issues with children as young as eight. Yes, I've heard that from church leaders in the last few months who are like, it's a transgender bathroom issue at their church with an eight-year-old. It's like, which one do I use? And it just raises so many issues. Like, why are you even having the discussion with an eight-year-old as a parent? But here it is at our churches. Yeah, and so I think that you have, um, uh, so that's actually uh, one of the things in, in the book coming out that I, explore, which is if you're going to understand Generation Z, you have to understand the way they were raised and the way they're being raised. And the fact that um, uh, it's, it, it, it involves a lot of what I have called underprotective parenting. Okay. Um, there was a real swing. Uh, the boomers were probably in their own minds overprotective or maybe culture has said that they were. Right. You've heard about helicopter parenting, you know, hovering. Yeah. And so, um, Generation Z, which was largely raised by Generation um, uh, X, quite frankly, um, has swung the other way, which is uh, I'm going to be hands off. I'm going to almost what they call free range parenting. Right. I'm going to I'm going to be uh, air the other way. Well, that's ripped even more childhood away uh, in terms of their exposure. You mentioned of technology because we're talking about a generation being underparented, yet they've got the world in their pocket through their smartphone. Yep. And so they, they're, they're just not just lost, they're leaderless. Mm. They are, they, they've gotten very independent because they feel like they can find anything they want to know. Right. But leaderless. search away, but it's vast amounts of information and no wisdom. Mm. And so when you have the lack of wisdom and no filters, the things that traditionally families, parents, educational institutions and churches provided, um, and you throw a child into that mix without those filters, without those protections, without that wisdom. Well, you get a lot of Generation Z. And I mean, yeah. and then we haven't even talked about pornography. I so mean, we'll go there in a moment. How does that play out in, say, a 12 year old? So how is a 12 year old different today than two generations ago? Like, what is that doing on the inside of them to their soul, to their heart, to their mind? Um, they are wildly independent incredibly self-directed and they are engaged in attitudes and behaviors that uh, have never been seen before so widespread in a generation. Uh, for example, just 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 think about 
let's just uh, for a minute, just think about pornography. Yep. As one of the things that they're exposed to uh, under protectively parented by um, that has that is unprecedented. OK, um, the average child now, the average right. is at least but when they're first exposed to pornography on a regular basis is at least 11. And it's and it, we're finding that it's actually skewing younger. What does it do to a nine, 10 or 11 year old exposed to hardcore pornography um, in um, almost an unadulterated, unfiltered, unlimited way? What does that do? Uh, well, we're finding. Well, first of all, we don't know for sure because yeah, this is yeah. on. We don't know. But here's here's what the early research is finding. We're finding that it increased, they have an increased level of sexual violence that they are a part of and that they inflict on others. Uh, there's the objectification of women, particularly sexually. There is increased promiscuity among both male and females, and there is a loss of knowing how to be intimate uh, relationally. Okay, that, that, that's, that's huge. Uh, so you have cases where there were like uh, recently three young boys, ages eight and nine, raped an 11-year-old. Uh, based on things that they've seen in pornography. Wow. You have girls as young as 10, 11, and 12, uh, or just past puberty, who are shaving, I'm, I'm, I'm just going to be really direct, shaving themselves in areas because that's the way they are in porn. And they said wow. that boys expect that. These At are 11 or 12. Girls, so yeah, yeah. Wow. so what, what this is doing to our culture is is and um and to these people is horrific to think about that the coarse nature that it is making endemic to their their being is just unprecedented in fact one person and i, and I that i quote i thought this was such a an interesting statement he said for generation z pornography is the wallpaper of their life man it's just it, it, they're just, it's all it's just over. noise. It's all over. And, and, but what it's doing to them and what it's doing to their mindset and what it's doing to their view of other human beings is, um, nightmarish. Yeah. Does this get into like how the brain is wired and hardwired for responses? And, you know, there, there's brain research now that says, you know, a guy who has serious porn issues cannot really have a relationship sexually with a woman because, Real life doesn't work that way. No, I mean, I mean, there's all kinds of things we're finding that it has all physical ramifications all over the place. But one of the things that's not being talked about much, though, in terms of uh, that is what we're focused on is what does it mean missiologically in terms of just reaching them for Christ? Here's if, if you if you study the New Testament and particularly what Paul writes in Corinthians, you know that sexual sins are different than other sins. Yes. There's a way that they operate as almost uh, a dose of Novocaine in your spiritual system. So what happens if you're if you've deadened yourself spiritually through habitual sexual sin when it comes to then us trying to engage them spiritually? Now, again, I mean, <laughs> I don't mean this lightly. Thank God for the Holy Spirit you know, who works and operates. But I mean, we are dealing with a greater challenge because of the way even sexual sin operates on us spiritually. 
and deadens us spiritually. Right. In other words, the deadening in an intimate relationship also could kill intimacy with God, also kills relationships with neighbors. It's a, it's a soul deadening as opposed well, to... Well, that's, that's exactly what Paul says. He says yeah. there is a way that sexual sins are different than all other sins. I mean, he's very blatant about it. Yeah. So a lot of panicked parents listening right now who have 11 and 12-year-olds, uh, what advice do you have for parents and church leaders in light of even the access to technology, growing old, uh, younger? What I did an entire, oh, I'm so glad, I did an entire series called The Underprotective Parent, mm-hmm. where I just uh, tried to expose this and, and, and talk about what parents are truly afraid of, because yeah. parents are are being underprotective because they don't want to screw up their child. And they think that this is what it means to not screw them up. It's again, it's explaining, listen, this is the vision for parenting. This is the vision for family. This is the vision that God has. This is why it's best. And this is what happens when you're underprotective. And let's talk about these things. And I, and I, I, I almost, I go for almost a startle factor. I said, okay, are you screening music? Okay. I'm just going to throw the lyrics up on the screen here of the lyrics to the five biggest downloaded songs this week off of iTunes. And I just play them. And after about the fourth F-bomb, they're horrified because they had no idea how coarse it was. Or I'll say, um, you know, do you know what's on that video game? Do you know why it's marked M for mature? Do you do you know about um, what what kind of software do you have that is protecting your child's access to pornography? Um, Do you have accountability software with your sons? And I'm just I share very openly. I said, look. Um, you may feel like you're big and strong and tough and you don't need this stuff, but me and my two sons have agreed that, uh, I have four children and not grandchildren, but my two sons still to this day, both are married. Um, we have accountability software with each other Wow. that we, we choose to have on all of our devices to have with each other. So if I were to go to a sketchy site, both of my sons would know it. Man, That's a little preventative. Yep. And, and they're and, adults now. And yeah, I mean, they're married. And so we, we've just, uh, it's one of those, so I talk very openly about this and I've had so many men with the way I talk about it, it's not shaming. It's like, Hey, let's just get this out and let's talk about it as, as men and women. Um, and why we're attracted to porn and and what it does to us. And, 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 you know, and, and the fact that we're all better than this, we're better than this. So what happens is, is that, um, we get, I just get flooded with, in fact, I got something just even yesterday, uh, a guy writing in saying, I'm just. Uh, you know, battled porn for years. I never even tried to fight it till I got to Mac. The way it was talked about just brought it all to the surface for me. And and I, I, I you know, I just, I, I see it now for what it is. And, and you know, and I, I've, I've shared this now with, uh, I'm in a new Bible study and I actually shared it with a couple of guys and I found out I'm not alone. And it was just like a thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you for talking about porn. Wow. <laughs> and so, I think that that's what a, a church uh, does best if it's uh, really in the marketplace of ideas is that it's getting out things that people need talked about, but it's not being talked about healthy. In fact, that was a great line from Brene Brown, you know, who wrote the big book on shame. Yeah. And uh, we just did a series actually on shame, but she's got this line that says, uh, everybody experiences shame. Nobody wants to talk about it. And the less we talk about it, the more it controls our lives. Okay, now you apply that to so many things. Bingo. No, everybody's feeling this or experiencing this, tempted to this, or has done this, then you fill in the blank. Nobody wants to talk about it. Yeah. 
And the less we talk about it, the more it controls our lives. Mm -hmm. And that's true for thousands of What's interesting about, you know, even hearing your approach in this conversation, Jim, and we'll link in the show notes to all of those series that you've referenced, including the parenting um, series. But it's not just saying, okay, this is a series on porn. It's like, this is spiritual. This is, this is theological, right? Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. It, it, it would be a, a, a complete misunderstanding of everything that I'm saying is to say that, well, we're just denouncing this. Yeah, yeah. No, 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 no. Actually, when we talk about porn or when I talk about uh, uh, homoerotic behavior or we talk about transgender issues or we talk about any of the, like a sexual thing, what I'm really doing in that series is I'm casting a vision for God's uh, understanding of sex and intimacy. I'm casting a vision right. for the biblical view of marriage and family. And in so doing that, it necessarily um, exposes things in our culture that are different. Mm -hmm. But I'm trying to make the biblical vision so compelling that it just makes the other alternative views seem pathetic. Expose the ugliness of sin. Yep. And the inadequacy and, and the distortion, but also how it's really not best. Yeah. And so when you, when, I'm not saying I, I do this perfectly, but when you, when you do accomplish that, um, I think that's when it's at its most potent because you're not simply denouncing, you know, you're casting a vision that as you cast it, exposes things. Right. Well, and the other the other alternative, if you're like, well, I only preach theology, so let's do a series on the intimacy of God, and you've got 700 Bible verses, and it's great and spiritual, but inside your church, 60% of the people are addicted to porn, and that's killing intimacy in their life, and you don't raise that issue, then they'll never experience intimacy with God the way they could until they deal with that life issue, right? I see the interconnection there that's, that's genius. Well, brilliant on what you just said, Carrie. Because I'll tell you what, what, what um, I think that you you kind of intuited is that the way perhaps to get at deep theological issues is through the lens of these experiences. Yes. So maybe us talking about pornography is what will allow me a, a doorway to walk through to talk about the theology of the intimacy of God. Mm -hmm. And that's why you feel distant from God. That's why, you know, this is woman number eight. This is a lot, stuff, a lot of stuff going on here. In other words, the more you yeah. can help people see how all of this hangs together. Yes. And it does. It does. It does. Totally does. So, wow, this is uh, brain bending and so helpful. This is this is a book. You know, what I appreciate, too, is it's scholarly, it's academic, but it's hyper practical as well. So we have a few minutes left. Tell me about. Like if, if you were going to give us the primer on Gen Z, uh, Generation Z, what are some other things that you're like, here are two or three things that will surprise you or that every leader needs to know about Generation Z? And obviously there's, there's reams more in the book. Yeah. Um, let, me, let me tell you a couple things that would be both revelatory about them, but also speak to how to reach them yeah. and how to begin engaging them. Because yeah. I think it's, a, it's, a, it's an important that we, we get into that some, um, leaders need to become very tech savvy. And that is such a moving target. Um, millennials pat themselves on the back for being tech savvy. And, and yet you talk to Gen Z and they'll say, Ugh, Facebook. So yesterday, yeah. I mean, they're, they're not even there. 
Right. In fact, right. there was a 13 year old who wrote an article in Mashable that says, I'm 13 years old and none of my friends are on Facebook. So, I mean, it's really keeping up with technology and, and how and where they are. Where are they right now on Snap? Oh, it's, it's much more things that go away fast because they didn't like what they saw with the history of social media with others. So it's much more like Snapchat and Whisper and things like that and, and just just a, just different formats. Right. Um, and uh, another thing, too, that I would say that that as you become tech savvy, realize that that's going to be your point of first contact mm-hmm. with most of them. And here's what's interesting is they are open to that contact. They're even open to spiritual conversations. But uh, I talk about this in the book. You've got to get past their eight second window. Mm. They're going to give you eight seconds, roughly. And, and and if you don't get past their filter in that first eight seconds, you're not going to because they have learned through such a massive exposure to media through that they that they've learned to have this eight second filter. And I go into more detail about that in the book. But that's that's a missiological challenge. It's like good so news. Eight is, seconds in the sermon. You have yeah, eight seconds in the middle school. I mean, <laughs> I mean it's, it's, it's somewhat symbolic, but it's an important thing to get. It's like the good news is they're open to being reached out to through tech. Bad news is you got eight seconds to do it. Wow. Um, but uh, another thing, now. too, is that they're <laughs> incredibly visual. Yeah. Um, it was uh, Umberto Eco who first coined the phrase neo-medieval. Um, mm. uh, he didn't apply it the way I do, but I am convinced that we are entering a new Middle Ages. And in many ways, the, the, the parallels, and this could be a whole other conversation, but the parallels, I think, are stunning. But one of them is uh, spiritual literacy, uh, the rise of paganism, uh, or at least neo-paganism, and then also um, the importance of the visual. Right. And even though now it's not stained glass that we might need to use or to reach out to it, it is film. It cool. is film. And and this is and and the way that we're going visual, even with our language, our, our our very language is changing. I mean, what was the word Oxford's word of the year this past year was an emoticon. Oh, that yeah. was the word of the year. And that is becoming increasingly uh, language is changing yes. through technology and the way. Um, you actually converse with people, which is going to obviously have huge implications as we present the gospel. Mm. There's so many things happening right now culturally. I mean, this is like a if, if you are a student of culture for the sake of mission, um, this is a, a I mean, this is a, a incredibly dynamic moment. Let me ask you this. What is connecting with them right now? Like, again, these are the kids in our elementary, our middle school, our high school, maybe our college ministry or young adults. They're under 25. When, when they're responding, and I mean, we have hundreds at our church of the 1,200 who come who would fit that category. Uh, you probably have thousands. What, what is starting to connect with them? And what is, is it the poverty of the spiritual experience exposed? Is it um, better graphics, like what, what, what is connect? Is it the relationship that's just missing the, the lack of wisdom and when it's supplied in, in like relationship and community that they gravitate toward it? I'm just, I'm looking for a few flickers of direction. Yeah. I think, I think I almost want to answer you with another yes. Okay. Because I do think that there's a lot of things that you can do on the front end that may seem rather superficial of a technological way or or your topics or, or, or you know, things that would be attractive to a, a, a younger person. But 
then what, but once you kind of get them there through that, or at least build some uh, credibility through that, yeah. I mean, what they're, what they're starving for is relationship. They're starving yes. for, for understanding. They're starving for intimacy. Now, that aspect of the human condition has never changed. And all those are countercultural now, which is well, so weird. They, they, they are. And, and so um, I make a, one of the cases I make, try to make in the book is that the church needs to be, if it's going to be effective, uh, it has to be countercultural. Right. In other words, it really has to provide what the culture isn't. Um, because, see, this is, this is one of the things that's changed. Back in the 80s, for example, it was very important. And I, I do. I think it was very important that the church kind of enter the 20th century. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, and it needed to, to look at, at tired traditions and dusty music and, and, and even things as basic as decor and just come on. This is, yeah. it's like, I got to do a time. I got to do a time warp to meet God. This is, this is unnecessary. But, um, the, but what some I think did and some still do is feel like the most important thing is to be culturally relevant in terms of, I got to have a tattoo. I got to dress hip. I got to get the skinny jeans. We got to have the right music. It's got to have a techno vibe. I need to do a dubstep over here. We've got to constantly do because everything is about identifying and almost mirroring the culture. Um, the truth is, is that while we still need some of those eighties lessons, if, if we just do that, we will have nothing to offer the world that it doesn't already have. Yep. Yeah. And we're mimicking the poverty if that's it. And, and so authentic. And I, I come back to this. If we will just be the church, hmm. really authentically be that community that is is irresistible in its attraction because of grace and truth. And, and if we can just if we just will be that unified and and exhibiting grace and truth, we'll just be the church. I mean, I, I, the attractional power of that is, is it's going to be like water on a desert. Yeah. But what you're saying, just to be clear, somebody who is still stuck in 1985 or just mimicking the culture, it's not like, well, we can just do whatever we want and be irrelevant. At some point, you need to connect. And can you use the culture to reach the culture? Like, can Absolutely. you? It, it's yeah. just that it's just that yeah. when they get there, they need to experience a very countercultural community that is that is into intimacy and not separation that is into um, truth telling as opposed to lies that is into, in other words, um, you need to serve, serve up the truth of the Christian faith raw and unfiltered. And you need to uh, really be into the dynamics of Christian community and the one another's. None of this is playing out in our world. None of this. It, we're just, we're just in living in a culture of offense a culture of suing, a culture of distance and divide, a culture of objectification, a culture of um, interacting with each other in social media in ways that is all of us are trolls. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a dark, dark thing. And what we're inviting people into is a, a, a new community. And that's powerful. Hence the Renaissance uh, Dark Ages. Fascinating. Well, Jim, I know there are going to be people, people who want more, and we have just scratched the surface even an hour into this. Tell us where they can find your book and, uh, and where they can find you online. Yeah, the biggest online presence would be um, the Church and Culture website. It's just simply churchandculture.org. Mm -hmm. gotcha. And um, that will have links to all the 
different talks that we've been exploring here that they can get the, you know, uh, get a free subscription to the blog I do twice a week and, and see other books and things there. The books that I think that we've been talking most about would fall into the two more recent ones, the book, The Rise of the Nuns, and then the book, Generation Z, Meet Generation Z, uh, both of which, I mean, obviously Amazon or anything like that, if they're interested. Yeah, churchandculture.org. And then uh, I think our conversation was mostly uh, Meet Meet Generation Z and then The Rise of the Nuns book. Both of those would be, I think, helpful. Great. Thank you so much. Thank you, Carrie. This is this is great, and I doubt this will be uh, the last time we chat oh, on on this podcast. This was a lot of fun. Thank you so much, Jim. Don't you just love it when the practical and the theological meet? That's exactly what that was. It was great. If you want more information, go to the show notes, kerryneuhoff.com slash episode 121. Or actually, you know what points to my website now? This domain, leadlikeneverbefore.com. Just go there. Land you in the same place with all the without all the crazy spelling. So hopefully that helps you. Hey, just remember if you haven't got on the waiting list yet for the high impact leader, you can do that. Go to thehighimpactleader.com for the next release, which happens in a couple of weeks. And if you haven't yet registered for rethinkleadership.com at the end of April in Atlanta, rethinkleadership.com there. Hey, I am back next week with Greg McEwen, the author of Essentialism. If you have not, I mean, we have a lot of authors on this podcast, but like if you have not read Essentialism, you are missing out. I I picked it up on a flight and by the time we landed, it was a long flight, seven hours. I was done and I was sold. And uh, we worked hard at getting him on the podcast. It's a great conversation. If you subscribe for free, of course, you'll get that next Tuesday when it drops. And uh, just remember, we got the contest going on too, right? So if you follow me on social, on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook, uh, all the links are in the show notes. Uh, You may randomly win some Starbucks before January 10th. So really excited for that. Hey, we'll see you next Tuesday. Thanks so much for listening. If this episode has helped you, share it with a friend, put it on social media, leave a rating and review on iTunes. And I really hope our time together today has helped you lead like never before. Happy New Year, everybody. You've been listening to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast. Join us next time for more insights on leadership, change, and personal growth to help you lead like never before.